Speak the charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult, esotericism, and the paranormal. In this episode, I have with me Sam Block, a.k.a. Polyphonies, the brains behind the Digital Ambler blog and website. He is a magician, theurge, priest, a Twitter food critic, and a master geomancer. We're going to be discussing not only classical hermeticism, but his recent translation of Book 3 of the Corpus Hermeticum. Welcome back to the podcast, Sam. I mean, not welcome back. Welcome to the podcast for the very first time. Amazing. Thank you for having me here. Whether or not it's again. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it feels like a, a second time, although that first time, it was funny. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about you the first time I invited you on the podcast. Like, I don't think I'd, I don't think I very, I spent very much time looking up your name. I think I had just been following your blog and I was sort of like, oh, this guy looks really cool. Like, <laughs> he he does all the stuff I do. I I gotta I gotta have him on the podcast. And it wasn't until the after that, are, huh? The glamours are working. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't until after that that I realized that you already had this like huge following, and like I think you'd already been on Rune Soup or something like that, and like you'd you'd already be, yeah that, you'd already that like, happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I do, and and also the other thing was uh, I also hadn't realized at the time that you had sort of like shifted into this like geomancy phase where you were writing tons of stuff about geomancy on your blog. And that's kind of always been the case, though. I've, I've, I've pretty much always kind of been writing about geomancy. That's never really stopped. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. But <laughs> it, I guess it just seemed like it was a geomancy-heavy portion, and I think I talked mm. to you about, like, PGM stuff. Yes. Yeah, but anyhow. Today, we are going to talk about the Corpus Hermeticum. Yes, one of my favorite topics. It's one of mine too, and it's so. I feel like this is an, a conversation that's so overdue. Like the two of us, uh, kind of like every once in a while on the internet, we'll trade a few messages about it. You know, I'll yeah. be like, I'll be like, oh Sam, did you see this thing I wrote? And you'll be like, oh, did you see this thing I wrote? And then we'll be like, oh, that's super cool. Um, but we never really have uh, sat down to really nerd out. About it. Except what it involves refuting the Kabbalion, of course. Which um which is which is a really important thing to do, but it's such a filthy topic that I don't <laughs> think that I want to I don't want to soil my podcast. That's for like a, a, something special, like late night weekend episode where we're all just drinking just a bit about it. It could be a thing where we read the the Kabbalion out loud to each other, and we each take a shot every time it says the all. Let's do it with helium instead. Okay, well, helium, helium. <laughs> or nitrous. <laughs> they, they, they do make a helium-infused beer. Like, instead of coffee, it's helium-infused. And when you drink it, it actually also messes your voice in the same way. <laughs> like, this is, I recall this video on YouTube of these two, you know, burly German guys, mm-hmm. you know, drinking this helium beer. And, of course, you know, this, you know, they're talking deep 
manly German, you know, the very angry, brusque way that German sounds. And it just goes like this crazy high falsetto. And it's just, it, it's, it's a miracle unto itself. <laughs> I feel like I have to see that. I'm taking it. I'm this, if this is the only note I take for our entire episode, it's going to be helium beer. <laughs> okay. So, um, so recently earlier this year, maybe like three months ago, June or something like that, you, uh, undertook a translation of one of the books of the Corpus Hermeticum. Yes. Uh, a very s- small, simple, well, yeah, a short one. A, yeah. Not necessarily simple, but a short one. It's not the only short one. And I honestly, I think that there are some simpler ones, but um, yes. we should probably, you know, I guess the right thing to do would be to like explain what the Corpus Hermeticum is. Cause there's probably people listening who are like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? Oh, now this is a swearing episode. <laughs> I was going to wonder if I could do that. So, <laughs> making that barrier hurt me. Um, so, the Corpus Hermeticum is a collection of texts that were probably written from like the second century BC to the like third century CE. Wait, did I do that right? Yeah, yeah. And um, and they're uh, they're co- sort of like a Greek overlay on maybe Egyptian temple philosophy or some kind of like weird mixture of mysticism that was happening in Northern Africa, um, you know, around that time when like the Greeks had invaded and then the Christians came in and there were a bunch of Jews coming in there and the Egyptian religion, like the, or the Egyptian stuff was kind of like dying out. So everybody was like mixing everything together and it got like super weird. Well, it's also, yeah, this is the time, the, Hellenistic Egypt. So this is Egypt after, you know, the Ptolemaic dynasty, you know, Mm -hmm. the Greeks had started taking over Egypt. And then this is also the same time when Rome was shifting from being a republic to an empire and was also, you know, weighing its heavy hand on Egypt. And of course, Rome being Rome was a, had a major thing against like big superstitious religions. They had a respect for everything old. And of course, Egypt was the old of the old, Mm -hmm. but, they were still wary of a lot of the institutionalized temple practices of the Egyptians. And there was this whole like concurrent phenomenon across the Mediterranean, especially in the eastern parts of the Mediterranean, with what a lot of scholars have called pagan monotheism, which is a very debated topic, and I don't want to get into that. But it is known that there was a large-scale religious change in the water, as it were, where a lot of the pagan religions weren't dying out, but they were changing. And there was a shift from what we would conventionally think of a pure polytheistic practice into different forms of pagan practices that either weren't necessarily polytheistic or were in some cases more henotheistic. Some scholars have called some of these variants megatheistic. Um, Sam, Sam, what's henotheistic? Oh God! Um, <laughs> wait, did I, did I get that messed up? Did no, 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 word? no. Henotheism <laughs> is the one where you're sort of like monotheistic with other gods. Monolatric is what I was thinking of. Sorry, what's monologic? Yeah. I actually don't know uh, that mono, one. Monolatric, mono, like mono, Um Like you hear, you might hear like demonolatry. Uh-huh. You know, worship of demons. Right, monolatry right. is worship of one god, okay. whether or not it's in a context of other gods being there as well. 
Like think of uh, this Craig will me in some hot water somewhere with someone, you know, in the evolution of what we now have today as Judaism, we do know that in early Israelite religion, maybe better said as Canaanite was polytheistic. Mm-hmm. And then from that pantheon, you know, one God rose to the fore, you know, kind of taking like a position for, of Zeus or, you know, Jupiter Optimus Maximus for the Romans. And then, they got a larger and larger share of worship and that became from a polytheistic practice and a polylatric practice where you gave worship to many gods concurrently to worship of one God to a religion of one God monotheism. It's kind of like being a cleric in D and D. Yeah. Yeah. Very good parallel. Yeah. All right. There we go. We've totally, we've hit a peak nerd. (laughs) i've been talking with a lot of my friends and of course there's so much to be debated and this is just my observations from what i've read what i understand the times and of course there's definitely people out there who are much better well-read than i am who can offer their opinions and i'm definitely not saying they're wrong and i'd love to learn more about this time period and i have a whole bunch of books my wish list for that but you know time for reading and studies it's still time taken up but Getting back to the topic at hand, between the period of like 100 BCE to like 300 CE, you do see this weird development happening in Egypt. Some people say it's more Alexandria in Lower Egypt or Northern Egypt. Some people say it's more like in Thebes in like kind of the halfway point between Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, Um, but kind of still on the Upper Egypt side, the Southern Egypt side. But in Egypt, you have these interesting developments happening between the mixture of native Egyptian religion with Hellenized Judaic religion, with Hellenistic philosophy, like Stoicism and Platonism, mingling together in this already unusual time period for religions of the area and the culture and the era that we're talking about. And this is the time period you start to see Gnostic movements first starting to rise. Um, whether or not they are Christian or not, um, you start to see these interesting developments arise. And out of this time period, we start seeing the first hermetic texts arise. These texts that are written under the name of Hermes Trismegistos, thrice great Hermes, whom we know was associated and syncretized with the Egyptian Thoth. So, Yeah, okay. And then, so then the Corpus Hermeticum itself is a collection of what, like, uh, 18 texts, 16 texts. So uh, I actually first one of them saying, is missing. Yeah. Well, actually not quite missing. So there's oh, really? a story about that. So I actually don't like saying just Corpus Hermeticum because we have a lot more texts than just the Corpus Hermeticum. I know. So I but, like saying, you know, if we, I like saying Corpora Hermetica, the cor- plural. Corpora Hermetica. Okay. I mean, that's true. There's a lot of different texts, but if we're going to keep this, sort of narrowed in Limited, yeah. scope. Uh, I think we should think about just sort of the collection that came to um, Ficino and um, and sort of like made its way through, you know, sort of yes. wreaked a rampage through Renaissance Europe, which was, uh, you know, the set of texts with, with like number 14 missing. Um, I think it was actually book 15 and it wasn't 15? missing. It was just, was it 15? I don't know. I'm looking at the table of contents right now. <laughs> there's no table um, of contents 
Uh, yeah, it's 15. It's 15. And it wasn't okay. missing. It's just that when Marsilio Ficino put out his translation, what he had as book 15 was actually a bunch of other hermetic texts that we now find in the Stobian fragments. Mm. And once it was understood where they came from, no one really bothered with, quote, book 15 anymore because it was actually just another set of texts that was already in another collection of Hermetica. So that's why it kind of just historically has dropped out. Okay. And then there's book 18, which a lot of modern scholars just kind of just trash. They don't consider it Hermetic at all. They just call it... That's the one uh, tat to King Ammon? No, that's... uh, It's not tied to King Ammon. It's... I think one of the scholars, I think it was like Fasugier and Na called it a, uh, insipid prose. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I guess book 17 is a tat to uh, Amon. 17? Yeah. So. Well, it's tat, but it's not necessarily to Amon. It's to a king. Oh. Which okay. could be. Yeah. That's actually a good, good point to point out. Because um, book 16 is Asclepius to King Amon. Right, right, so, right. Yeah, not a bad connection to make. And that's kind of cool in itself because it's... Um, it's like a ladder of teachers, right? So the Corpus Hermeticum starts off with the, with the po- Poimandres, the which is, the you know the man shepherd, the the noose of God. Okay, it, but you know coming down and <laughs> yes. talking to Hermes, and then Hermes passes his message along, but then the noose of God comes back again, and he's like, oh wait, hold on, I got some shit wrong the first time. Here's another message, and then you know. And then it, it also sort of, you, you see Tat, uh, Hermes' son, kind of learn some lessons. And then finally in book 13, he kind of learns about... You have the about, rebirth of Tat. Yeah. Or the first rebirth, right? Because there's more Hermetica outside of the, corp, the Corpus yes. Hermeticum, such as, you know, the, the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead and the Nag Hammadi scriptures yeah. where, where Tat undergoes his, like, super vowel transformation. Oh God, this is, oh, this is just opening up like 15 cans of worms at the same time. I know it's great. (laughs) (laughs) So as you know, and as probably many of your viewers know, the Corpus Hermeticum are largely written in the form of dialogues, Mm -hmm. which was just the thing you did at the time. Like how you have all these didactic works on astrology and stuff written as poems. You know, it was common at the time to write philosophical texts and treaties as a series of dialogues. Think of all the dialogues of Plato, Mm -hmm. you know, with Socrates and Timaeus and Philo, all as, you know, characters in this drama where each sharing their own points of view. Of course, Socrates always winning out because Plato. Um, A lot of the texts in the Corpora Hermetica are also written in the form of dialogues. Not all of them, though, but the vast majority of them are. Some are written in the form of letters. Some are written more as like a fire and brimstone sermon kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but of the Corpus from like in most of these texts, there are a recurring cast of characters. There's Hermes, you know, Hermes Trismegistus, who is the teacher. You know, the one who has received all these divine revelations and is teaching them to his students, Asclepius, Tat, his actual son, who's also one of his students, and Ammon. And of course, because these are texts that are both Egyptian and Greek, all these names have Egyptian parallels. Hermes Trismegistus is Thoth, and Tat is also a variant of the name Thoth. You know, we say the theta sound like a thin sound, mm-hmm. but 
back in the day, it was literally just a T and an H, a breathy T. Right. Tat. Tot. Exactly. Uh, Asclepius is Imhotep, mm-hmm. you know, an ancient priest of, I think it was Ptah, um, but who was later on deified in his own right as a, you know, another god of scholars and inventors. And then Amon, uh, Amon. <laughs> so, I mean, mm-hmm. so you have like this weird cast of people who in the texts are human. Like this, the Corpora Medica explicitly says these are human entities with divine origins, which is like how all the Romans were descended from Venus. You know, if you look at the Aeneid and so forth. Mm. Um, but interestingly, there are actually three books in the Corpus Hermeticum specifically that don't mention these names. Um, most of these books, you know, oh, this lesson of Asclepius to Ammon or Hermes to Asclepius. And you see their names referring to each other. You know, hey, you know, Hermes, can you explain this to me? You know, hush Asclepius, let me tell you what is right. But books one, three, and seven of the Corpus Hermeticum don't actually have any of these names in them at all. Wait, book, they don't mis- book one doesn't have Hermes. The name Hermes. Nope. If you read book one, the name Hermes is never mentioned. Yeah, it's interesting. Book one is told in the first person. Exactly. You know, it's like I was, you know, chilling out one day and then all of a sudden. And then Poimantis appeared to me in a vision. Mm-hmm. And then Hermes' name is never mentioned. That's true. Likewise, Dang. in book three which is what we'll talk about later on, it's kind of like the musing of an old mystic, mm-hmm. you know, on the nature of the cosmos, which isn't dialogue-based at all. It's just have a, a series of maxims given in a kind of theatrical process. And then book seven is like a fire and brimstone, you know, sermon given to the public, you know, wake up, sheeple. You know, yeah. it's time to wake up. Stop time drinking so real. much. Exactly. <laughs> So these three books are interesting and there are similarities between these three books, not just in the fact that they lack the name Hermes, but even in terms of content and style and flow and what it is they're trying to say. Book one and book three share a very similar outlook on the creation of the cosmos. Book one and book seven have very similar sermony type aspects, especially the end of book one. And it's because of that, that I kind of interpret these three texts as the introductory definitely hermetic but i'd probably say it's a little more accurate to say proto-hermetic i think these were the three texts that kind of we have access to that kick-started off all the rest because book 13 definitely references book one. Oh yeah book 13 definitely references the name poemandris so we know that the other texts were written after some of these especially book one um and it's interesting to note if these are her- proto-hermetic, then where did they come from? Um, and a lot of my research, you know, following the footnotes of Brian Copenhaver and, you know, Clement Salomon and so forth. Like I've been reading Walter Scott, I've been reading C.H. Dodd, I've been reading Christian Bull, Christian Malberg, Wouter Hanegraaff. And there's a heavy streak of both Hellenic Jewish influence as well as Stoic influence. We typically think of the Hermetica as a whole to be more platonic. And in later times, it definitely got to be more Platonized, especially when Iamblichus came onto the scene and then took in the Hermetica into his form of Platonism, which fed back into Hermetic practices after Iamblichus. But in the beginning, it was a lot more Stoic than Platonic. And we see a lot of that in book one and book three. 
you know, when I was um, when I was reading through the Hermetica last night, I was kind of struck by this sort of. Uh, it, it sort of recurs throughout. I kind of made notes every time I sort of came across it, but there's like this Russian nesting doll theme of creation or the structure of the universe that struck me as like super Aristotelian too. Awesome. Um, I guess I always just sort of think of, uh, well, in one of them in particular starts with the prime mover. Like here's the prime mover and there's this, this whole chain of being that descends out from it. And I was like, oh, that sounds totally like Aristotle's metaphysics. Um. Uh, and that was that's about as far as I got. I I, I was speed reading last night, so. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like there's a lot of um, you know, I guess a lot of the the commentary I've read or the stuff that I've read about it talks about how. The Hermetica seems to be, a Greek overlay on some other type of philosophy, like almost a way of trying to explain this philosophy in a way that um that the the Hellenistic, you know, imports could understand. That's definitely one theory. I've read that before, and I don't disagree with it. But it's also as likely to my mind that this wasn't written for the Greeks per se. It was written for Hellenized Egyptians. Okay. And I think the distinction there is huge. Like, yeah, these texts are in Greek because Greek was the lingua franca of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was Lincoln Franca really for pretty much the entire world at that point. Well, you know, the entire Mediterranean. As, let's, you know, let's not. Okay, yeah. If, if, thank you for correcting me. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> like, as far east as India, you know, and as far west as Spain, you know, yeah, the Roman Empire was in charge, but it was the Greek language that everyone in that, you know, Roman Empire really knew. So I think that just because it's in Greek doesn't mean that it is Greek in sense of culture or philosophy. I think it's just Hellenized Egyptian. I think that's a better way that's a, to interpret it. That's a good point. I, sh- I probably should have said it like that too. Um, because we're looking at a, a period of time where uh, Egypt had already been Hellenized for a couple centuries. hundreds of years, yeah. yeah. So you had, um, but but also, you uh, at least the sense that I get is that Alexandria was a pretty major trading post or major port. So there was a lot of culture. There was a lot of cultural exchange going on there. Um, So you had old Hellenized Egyptian families, like Greeks who had been settled there for, you know, generations, Generations. but also a lot of newcomers, you know, younger families or newer, newer imports. Uh, But again, like we don't know how, you know, it's just, it's, I guess it's just, so difficult to picture well at least for me it's very difficult to picture exactly who the audience would be but i do agree that it that hellenized greeks makes the most sense i also want to point out that in a lot of discussions i encounter regarding like the pgm or about you know the hermetica or about this that, and the other involving you know the classical eastern mediterranean world you know a lot of people think that alexandria was like if they don't think it, they say things in a way that leads me to think that they think that Alexandria is like the only Egyptian city that mattered. And oh, it's not. Right. Um, I, it was a major city. It absolutely was. Like It was like the trading port of the Eastern Mediterranean, at least the Southeast Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Egypt was a series of cities all up and down the Nile. 
And I think we underplay and don't appreciate as much the role that all these other metropolises played. And I think that there's a stronger claim, if not for Thebes, then at least having some connection with Hermopolis, mm-hmm. you know, further up the Nile. I think we don't appreciate that enough. And yes, absolutely, Alexandria absolutely was, you know, a mixing bowl of its own, a mixing pot, a melting pot. But so were a lot of other places, each with its own distinct culture, its own distinct cosmology, its own distinct set of Egyptian religions. Because, mm-hmm. of course, there was no such thing as standardization back then. There was no centralization, even in the elaborate uh, institutionalized structure of Egyptian society. So to only think of this as an Alexandrian phenomenon, I think is faulty. And by expanding one's scope to Hermopolis, to Thebes, even to the Fayum, um, where I've seen one scholar th- thinks that book one, the Corpus Medicum, actually came from this place kind of off to the east, sorry, off to the west of Egypt, hmm. um, off to the west of the Nile in the Fayum, um, based in the name Poem Andres and his own interpretation of the name. We see all these influences developing. And Definitely, there's Greek and Hellenistic components, but there's at least as much Egyptian stuff. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, let's pivot. I feel like everybody listening to this so far is probably uh, slight, their heads. <laughs> slightly more certain of what the Corpus Hermeticum is and slightly more aware of how confusing it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, a, it's always a lot of stuff to take in. I guess... Uh, I feel like uh, for me, as much as I love the history and stuff and as much as I, I, I don't read about it as much. I spend a lot of time in the Corpus Hermeticum itself and not as much time wondering about where it came from, which I think is kind of a fault. I do need to rectify that. But like, you know, I do meditations and like read the Corpus Hermeticum aloud and that sort of thing and like spend time thinking about what it's talking about and maybe not as much time thinking about where it came from. It's useful. It's, I, this is a, this is a fault that I have myself. Like in order to get a better appreciation for the Corpus Hermeticum and related texts, I look at the footnotes in Mm -hmm. Copenhaver and Litwa, you know, in Salomon, at least as much of the text itself. And they're pulling out all these references to all these other philosophical texts and philosophers and religious texts at the time and other religious milieu and so forth. And I wish I had more time to read and study philosophy as much as this deserves. But we all have our limits. We all have our limits. Yeah, that's true. Let's talk now. Let's talk about book three. All right. So, uh, so the Corpus Hermeticum, or, or at least as far as I know, most of it is written in Koine Greek, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, and there are a few short books. Um, and by short, like, I don't know, how many words do you think, how many words is book three? Like, less? It's two pages. So, like, <laughs> 500 to 750 words, like a, a pretty, pretty short little tract. It's... I wouldn't even consider a college application essay length. Like, <laughs> but it's also it's not there. There are like book seven is also that is shorter. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and there are a few other like really short books, um, sort of scattered down. I think like book four is pretty short, and book two is kind of short. But, um, I mean, when we say books, I mean 
traditionally they're called books, but they're like chapters, a series of chapters. And if you actually look at, you know, Copenhaver's Hermetica, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a pretty sizable book. It is, but, but honestly, that's because it's all footnotes and commentary. Exactly, exactly. Like, it's footnotes and commentary. That's the why you get Hermetica, Solomon. That's why you get like a Solomon's Way of Hermes because oh, um, I read that too. But yeah. I, I read them all alongside each other. I think yeah. they both have both great merits in different ways, and so mm-hmm. I consult both simultaneously, side by side, all the time. Yeah, I do too. I like Solomon a lot for for meditative work or for sort of like <laughs> contemplating the text because it's very it's readable. Oh, and it's it's kind of poetic. Like it's got this great flow to it, and you know the um, the footnotes are endnotes, so it's the, the they aren't very intrusive when you're reading. Because I I love footnotes. I get very distracted by footnotes. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean they are really useful to read side by side. But um, did you pick? Why did you pick book three? It, I assume length had something to do with it, but there must have been something else about it. So to kind of take a totally unexpected opening for this, I love the Heart Sutra from Mahayana Buddhism. You know, a lot of Buddhists out there, especially if you're familiar with any kind of East Asian forms of Buddhism, you'll be aware of what the Heart Sutra is. I've written a blog post about it years ago, and it's one of my favorite devotional texts and religious texts from Buddhism, which is weird because when you actually look at the text, it's just a very high level condensed, you know, set of doctrines and theology and cosmology about, you know, how everything is interrelated. You know, the message is beautiful, but the way it's written is really weird, but it's recited daily, sometimes multiple times a day by millions and millions of people because it's such a short, simple text that it, is often treated like a whole chant in its own right. And recently there is a um, Zen Buddhist monk on YouTube who did 108 days of techno chanting because before he became a monk, he was a uh, beatboxer and DJ. Um, I have to, I have to interrupt you. (laughs) I have to interrupt you for two stories. First I've recited the, um, the heart sutra. I was at, uh, so uh, Dom, who is the co-host of the Magician and the Fool podcast, is local, and I went with him to a Buddhist, I'm going to get all the terminology wrong, it's a Buddhist congregation, a Buddhist group that, uh, it's a Sanda. church, yeah, that, that meets in um, Portland, and um, it's Japanese, and so there's a lot of Japanese uh, recitations of stuff, including the Heart Sutra, uh, and I don't speak Japanese much, but um, I do. I did take Japanese lessons in high school, uh, and my pronunciation is incredible. <laughs> and so I was sort of chanting next to him, and afterwards he looks over at me and goes, I didn't know you knew Japanese. That was amazing. I was like, I have no idea what the hell I was saying. <laughs> I was just reading. <laughs> um, it's funny because the Heart Sutra isn't even really in Japanese. It's technically in Chinese with Japanese pronunciation. But I think this one was eh. translated, though. Really? Oh, that's I believe so. I think uh, my impression... Uh, I, I honestly don't know. It was, you know, it was before the, the COVID times. So it feels like before it was the rain lady of crowns, but it was really like a week before. <laughs> I think it was in February. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. So the other thing is there's a, there's a Buddhist in my apartment complex and he's, uh, he's really a serious um, practitioner of some form of Buddhism. I, I don't know what it is, but he 
does chanting and bell ringing and chanting and bell ringing. And it's kind of great. Like I can usually just barely hear him, but he does these sort of like droning long chants. And I just love kind of like sitting out on my front porch and listening to this from like, you know, five apartments down. It's really a delight. Um, Your apartment members probably don't think as highly as you do, unfortunately, but I assume the closer you live to him, the, you know, the louder and more intrusive it is, but how do you, how do you go up to like a Buddhist chanter and be like, you have to stop doing that. Your quest for enlightenment is disturbing my life. <laughs> awkward. I yeah. would be the situation. <laughs> well, awkward enough that like he's been there for probably three or four years and nobody said anything to him. <laughs> Good for him. Them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. So back to the heart yeah. sutra. So the heart so, sutra. I-, I love it. And it's a great text to memorize a chant. And I use it to, and I don't use it anymore that much because I, I love Buddhism. Buddhism has been a huge influence on a lot of my own practice and internal work, but I don't do a lot with it anymore. But I still hold you know a soft place in my heart for the Harp Sutra. <laughs> and looking through the Corpus Hermeticum, it struck me how similar in some ways Book Three reminds me of the Harp Sutra. It's a short text. It's not a lot of words. It's a high-level introduction to cosmology, to theology, to devotion. It tells you what the structure of the cosmos is, how things came to be in the cosmos. Now that we're here, what is it we were made to do? What is it we need to start focusing on and working on? And engaging with that, how things will progress for us. Um, and I found this all to be beautiful in its own way on a level that some of the other hermetic texts don't strike me as being as beautiful. Of course, part of this is that book three is inherently high level. It has to be. It's such a short little thing. Right. Um, and it's so general that it has to treat a lot in a very few words. But it struck me how beautiful and meaningful this text is. And in some cases can be considered a classical let me rephrase that. Everyone knows the, what the Emerald Tablet is. You know, as above, so below. You know, it is true, most certain, most true, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. The thing with Emerald Tablet is that it actually postdates so much of the classical Hermetica. And I actually use the Emerald Tablet as a sort of boundary point, a sort of threshold between classical Hermetica and medieval or Renaissance Hermetica. Oh, yeah. I don't think you're alone in that. Yeah. But some people do contest that. Really? Even though they're wrong. You know they're wrong. Um, Do they contest it because they think that the Emerald Tablet is older? Ancient, ancient, ancient. Yes. Oh God, it's not ancient, ancient, ancient. It first appears in like the 500s or 600 CE like in an Arabic text. Like it may yeah. well have an origin in earlier text, which if it does, we have no evidence of it. We have no record of it. It's not seen in any other language. So if it is, there's no evidence for that. Right. But book three is I think as important in that regard from a classical standpoint as a lot of people consider the Emerald Tablet to be today. And like the Emerald Tablet, it is worthy of a lot of contemplation. It's not as symbolic, but it it is as packed with meaning and direction as the Emerald Tablet. And I think that's important. Yes, I agree. You know, you were talking about the contemplation aspect of it. Um, I really love book one. 
And I think book one is just uh, an incredible piece. Absolutely. But um, so both both book one and book three sort of have a creation story that kind of like outlines like this is what the universe is and here's the structure and everything. Um, but book one's is kind of chaotic and you're kind of like riding along with the narrator on his journey that he doesn't totally understand and he's like overloaded mm-hmm. with imagery and so trying to fit that narrator's like whole experience into a contemplation is i've always found it to be really tough because it's yeah. so it's so rubber bandy you know there's so much bouncing back and forth it's like trying to get in the head of the author of the book of revelation from the bible oh, like yeah. that's a vision yeah and in order to understand you have to see that vision for yourself and if you don't understand that vision it's just going to be an acid trip in words mm-hmm. yeah so, for sure likewise book one book one does a better job of explaining itself but not necessarily a great job yeah but it's still instructive in a lot of ways yeah whereas book but three doesn't can, have a visionary component to it yeah and i feel like it's easy to fit all of book three in your head at once mm-hmm. you know you yes. can you can kind of get it sort of has a nice roundness to it. It has a good sort of intro. It's sort of like, you know, if a mystic was taught how to write like one of those five paragraph essays. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in this case, it'd be more like four, four sections. Yes. Four paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to have like an intro and a conclusion. So those are, you know. <laughs> Which is exactly what book three has. It actually has an introduction <laughs> that outlines the rest of the essay. It has a conclusion that wraps it all up in the same way that echoes the introduction. It's actually really elegant and sophisticated. It is. I, way- I, I like it. I, I have to say before I saw you spend this much time on it, like I'd certainly read book three and spent some time with book three, but I hadn't really. So this is the thing that I really like about it. You picked... You picked a short book to translate, which in my mind is very, very practical. Like, of course you pick a short book. You know, you're not fluent in Koine Greek, so there's going to be a lot of time spent on this. And, you know, you got other projects, so you don't want to, like, spend a thousand years on it. But then um, the other thing is, like, you must have, through this process, gained so much intimacy. You have an intruder, by the way. That's my husband. Don't worry about it. Okay. Cool. Um, But you must have gained so much intimacy with that text. Like you must have uh, spent so much time looking at how, you know, because Koina is, uh, is one of those, it's, it's okay. But it's, but it's also one of those languages where um, word order doesn't always strictly matter. And that uh, everything changes based on its relation to everything else. Like, I'm sorry, every word changes based on the its English. relationship. It's an inflected language, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, which which must have given you, like, an incredibly deep experience of the language of that book while you were translating. And so I'm just wondering, I feel like I might have skipped ahead 10 questions by getting to this point, but, but did that happen? Yes. And if you actually look at my translation I put on my blog... It differs fairly sharply at points from what Copenhagen or Salmon or other translators have, which makes me worried. But looking... So, okay, let me clarify something. I don't know Greek. I actually do not know <laughs> Greek. Um, I know Latin. I've studied Latin, you know, in middle school and high school. I wish I studied in college, but I didn't have the time for it. And my mom, of course, always said, oh, Latin be worthless. You're not going to use it. And it turns out it's actually one of the most useful classes I ever took in my life. So 
<laughs> Suck it, mom. Like, what I about home um, I actually never took home I took typing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've seen how much you tweet, so I think that one might have been useful, too. <laughs> well, I actually didn't learn to type in typing class. I learned to type from being in chat rooms on AOL back in the day and having to keep up with everything. <laughs> Which got me in trouble in typing class because my right hand was always like two letters over. So I always had my pinky on the enter key. So I could always you know, type enter if I needed to. Um, but anyway, so I know Latin. And Latin and Greek, they're different languages, but they still operate on a lot of the same principles. They're both Indo-European languages and they follow a lot of the same sets of rules. And knowing how Latin works on a deep level help me figure out rather quickly how Greek works. And by knowing what a conjugation is, what a declension is, how certain words inflect, and given the already striking parallels in structure and spelling between Latin and Greek, beyond just borrowing words from one language to the other, I was able to use you know a good trusty dictionary, especially Perseus Tufts, which actually points out the specific inflection for you, which made my life a whole lot easier. Um, just plugging words into that, getting the exact, what the word means and what the word is doing. And then just looking at the context of the word and where it appears. And then plugging all this together, the same way I'd work the Latin translation, I produce this Greek translation, which when I put this out, Patrick Dunn, you know, the translator of the Orphic Hymns who wrote, uh, God, how many books has he written at this point? Postmodern Magic. And they're all incredible. I know if he he on Facebook he was like stop that you have to leave me something <laughs> so he, he and I have like this weird like twin evil twin dichotomy between us it's kind of hilarious but um I adore him so with book three I took a very I started with the words and the grammar and I just went from there and then I kind of used Copenhagen and Salomon as a guide to kind of make sure I was on the right track. But there are certain points where I could not keep up with them because my understanding of how the words were working in the context just didn't match with them. And that's where things really got different, especially in the third section of book three, when it comes to what humans are supposed to be doing now that we're here. If you look at Clement, if you look at uh, Salmon and Copenhaver's works, at first I read it, as if there's this dichotomy between what their bodies were made for, well, what our bodies are made for, and what our souls are made for. Um, like, to quote from Copenhaver, um, the gods sowed the generations of humans, indicating a more physical kind mm-hmm. of action, to know the works of God, to be a working witness to nature, to increase the number of mankind, to master all things under heaven, to discern the things that are good, to increase by increasing and multiply by multiplying, and through the wonder-working course of the cycling gods, they created every soul incarnate. Now we're getting to a more soul focus to contemplate heaven, the course, the heavenly gods, the works of God, and the working of nature to examine the things that are good, and so forth and so on. And Solomon kind of has the same structure. You know, this kind of division between what bodies are for and what souls are for. And I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And I think that urge to know more because no two translations of the corpus hermeticum seem to agree on what book three is actually saying which is fair because book three is not a well-preserved book like there are parts that are missing there's some corruption in the text there are some words that we just don't know what they're doing what they mean um 
so every translator is going to have their own take on book three to some extent. They all kind of agree at a high level what it's saying, but when you get to what specifically it's saying and how it's saying it, that's where you get the differences. So I start digging into the Greek from uh, A.D. Nock and A.J. Festugiera's work, which is the best critical version of the Greek Corpus Hermeticum and all the stabai and fragments and everything else like that. And when translating book three, that's where I picked up on some really interesting stuff involving that third section, where I realized that I could not get to a, the same point that Copenhagen and Salmon arrived at, this division of body works and soul works. And I ended up with something radically different, where it's still a parallel structure, but it's the parallel structure we see in the beginning of book three. You know, God is the glory of all things, that which is divine and divine nature. There's this works of the divine and workings of nature parallel structure you see time and again in book three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the things that the divine are and the things that nature does. And that's kind of how I interpreted what humanity is supposed to do in terms of the divine and divine nature, as opposed to just body and soul. Right. That's really beautiful. Thank you. It makes me think of, um, it makes me think of uh, book one again too, because there's this part of the vision of the narrator in book one where when creation happens, we have, um, well, you know, so man is created as sort of like this godlike creature alongside nature, which is another godlike creature. Mm-hmm. And when man sees nature, man falls in love and is like, I'm going in. With his own reflection. Yeah, basically, um, his own reflection in nature, right? And man's like, I'm going in. I'm going to go down there and sort of party. party. But the impression you get from it is like, Man does have a divine nature. Man is sort of set apart from nature itself. But uh, but also that kind of like man as sort of like the God man is down here in nature to kind of like take care of it. Yes, 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 yes. Book three definitely echoes that in no uncertain terms. We are... Book three does say we're supposed to be the masters of nature, but master in the sense of governor, in the sense of custodian. Mm -hmm. We are supposed to rule nature, but in the sense of managing it. And we see a similar sentiment echoed later on in the Renaissance with the whole alchemy movement, the the Renaissance alchemy movement, where they say that nature unaided fails, which I think is a put down to nature. I think nature is pretty good on its own. Let's be honest. But yeah, but we didn't we, know that back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, even that, oh, I think we did well further on in the classical period. Sure. But I think that we are here to develop and improve on the works because of nature, because in book one and in book three, there's a sentiment that humanity is made in God's image. We are the child of God. And we were blessed with the power of creation as God is creator. And so 
in that sense, we are all in some ways a demiurge of our own in the world approving, optimistic, non-Gnostic sense, demiurge in terms of craftsmen. And so we are in the world to continue that work of creation, to continue that work of development and making things better, to make things, capital G, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, so then, okay, you got into the translation. You were working through the Greek. Um, you know, things were going smoothly. What was, uh, was there a big surprise? Like, aside from your, dis- that, that particular disagreement or that particular difference from um, uh, Copenhaver and Solomon, was, were there any, like, big surprises? Did anything just sort of be like, holy shit, I didn't see this coming? I don't think it was that stark. I mean, it was the slow realization you have of how big something can be. It wasn't all at once. It was something slow and cumulative. And as I kind of unlocked one puzzle, another one opened up to continue the thread. Like playing a mist or a Riven game, you know. Um, It wasn't all at once. It was slow and built up to a much more profound nature, understanding of book three. It wasn't falling into a pit. It was digging a hole. Got it. Okay. Um, Yeah. And of course, you know, I admit whenever I'm doing translation work and just things in general, I'm always terrified that I don't get things right or correct. I have a big perfectionist streak. Sure. Um, I want to do things right. I want to get things right. And the fact that I, there are these massively well-known translators out there who had one answer and I didn't arrive at the same answer they did like that, that, that concerns me. I'm not going to lie, but <laughs> looking at, the grammar and the words alone just taking a very strict literal looking at the text with as few emendations as possible sometimes you can avoid it but sometimes you can and arguably should i mean, look at walter scott walter scott wrote his whole magisterial work on the corpus hermetica and corpora hermetica generally and his his insights are invaluable to the study of the modern study of hermeticism the classical hermeticism absolutely but as Copenhaver notes in his introduction, he is deeply insightful, and as often he is right, he is often wrong. Because he wasn't working with the actual text as it was. He mangled and mixed up and remixed the Hermetic texts in the original Greek form to make it make sense for him. Right. He translated what the texts he thought they should be and not what they actually are, which is an interesting approach. Like for book three, he says he has edited with a free hand um, because he (laughs) finds it so corrupted to be unintelligible. And he arrives at some innovative conclusions, um, which I are interesting to look at and sift through and chew on, but definitely with a grain of salt. So I, took the exact opposite approach of Walter Scott and just try to stick to the text as closely as possible based on what Nakin Fustugier had and then just worked from there. And that's how I ended up where I ended up. So there's a problem um, translating some of these classical languages, especially Koina, where there are various terms that don't uh, translate super cleanly into English. Oh, boy. Uh, like, you know, noose is probably the one that anybody who's spent any time with the Hermetica is familiar with because, you know, like Solomon refuses to translate it. 
And mm-hmm. he's like, just I'm just going to use noose. We, we don't know what the hell it means. It's like the mind or something like the mind or because, you know, humans have a noose or most of us uh, and God has a noose and like God's noose can talk to our noose. And then like, I don't know. <laughs> well, think about this. Like, take a step back and think about Hermes. You know, Hermes in general, not just the Egyptian Hermes, but Hermes in general. You know, the word Hermes is related to the word hermeneutics. You know, the interpretation, the art of interpretation. And Hermes is the god of language. You cannot translate without simultaneously interpreting. You cannot split the two. To translate is to interpret. Okay, well then, but you you tried super hard to just do a straight translation. Well, right? straight as, as possible for a gay guy, sure. Um, <laughs> you tried as hard as possible to do a gay translation. <laughs> um, so, yes, I tried to be as authentic to the text I could, but I still had to interpret the text because the grammar of Greek, especially Koine Greek, especially a Koine Greek document that is not well preserved or well understood that has a whole bunch of weird things going on with it with words that just don't exist like in the Greek dictionaries. Like they, they're either hapax legomenon, you know, they mm-hmm. occur only the one time in all extant Greek literature. Did you encounter any of those? Yes. In, in book three. Yes. Who, what's your favorite and there one? Were, well, there's two of them actually. Oh, um, Spermilogun, uh, which if you look at it literally means like to pick up or to pick out seeds, but it doesn't, that doesn't make sense in the context where it appears. It has the root sperma seed Mm -hmm. and it has logos as another root. So, you know, word or, you know, something related to words, but it's seeds of words to to cast seeds. And it's, it's really weird. And, I had to interpret it as, um, I interpret it as casting seeds, mm-hmm. you know, to pick up so as to plant. But is that the original interpretation of the word? Is that what the author meant when he used the word? Mm, who knows? I'll, everyone seems to have a different answer on that. Hmm. Um, there's also terasporias, um, which is another difficult word that everyone seems to have difficulty with. And it's literally the sowing or the seeding of wonders or marvels or portents and so forth hmm. and i interpreted this and translated as sign seeding acts you know the things that cause omens the things that cause miracles or wonders but again everyone seems to have a different interpretation of this word huh. um and you know for instance you know there's another word despotean which I translate as management, but literally you hear the word despotean, you think despot mm-hmm. because it is that word. It means the power of a master, which some might say mastery, you right. know, dominance. I say management because of the context which it appears. I think it's a better understanding in that context from my perspective. Again, I'm having to interpret to reach for what I think is the best word to make it make sense for me in English. That's interesting. It's interesting that you ran into those and that you had to like figure out what they were going to mean to you. But also uh, all three of those are kind of like fairly 
critical concepts that could that could change the meaning of you know paragraphs exactly which, which in a four paragraph piece is pretty critical like that's that's got a lot of impact it really is i mean but no, like no two people use language the same case in point if i say the word apple in terms of the fruit what pops into your mind uh I guess probably either Red Delicious or a Granny Smith. Like it's a red apple or a green apple. For me, I think of Fuji or Pink Lady. Like we're both talking about the same general idea, but how it manifests to us, that's where it differs, that's where it differs right, between right. me and you. And that's everyone. Language is just a convenience. It's a convention. It's it something we come together over. Yeah, I mean, it but doesn't we, even matter unless uh, unless we share some interpretation of it, but it's kind of like, uh, I mean, this is, this is another hour. We, we don't, let's not crack that open. <laughs> yeah, fair. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's cool. Okay. Okay. Let's, so let's talk about, uh, what do you think was the biggest thing you learned? Like what, what are you going to take out of this experience of translating book three, uh, when you work with either uh, other Hermetica or other classical texts in the future? Something I ponder is maybe one day, if I ever have the months and months it require and the years and years of philosophy and Greek work, is maybe work on my own translation of the Corpus Hermetica. Not saying I will, but it's an idea. And if I were to do that, would I have the gall and the gumption required to renumber the books? And if so, what order would I put them in? Because I think book three should be either book one or book two. It is a very high level text. It talks about things at a very high level, mostly in terms of maxims or aphorisms or just basic points of doctrine without explaining them, without going too deep into the details, without getting into the weeds. So that alone makes it fitting for an introductory text. Mm -hmm. It's also a short text, which makes it easy for beginners to learn. Book one is, of course, the start of it all, sure. But it gets really heavy really quickly. It it's does. good for those who have the, you know, the tenacity to stick with it. But not everyone does. You know, when Buddha was going around from town to town, you know, he didn't go into the finer points of what nirvana is like. He didn't go to the finer points of, you know, how bad pure asceticism can be. He just said, anyone for the other shore, there is a way out of suffering. It is to do X, Y, Z. Follow me. He kept it short and simple. Right. And I think that's what book three also does. That's why I think it's a lot like the Heart Sutra in some ways. It's short. It's simple. It covers the main points of theology and doctrine and guidance. I think that's essential here is the guidance. You know, a lot of people think that the Corpus Hermeticum and the Corporal Hermetica are just dry works of philosophy that just talk about things without telling you how to do any things. And nothing could be further from the truth. Oh yeah, there's, there's tons so of instruction. Exactly. But people would have to sift through it. They actually have to do the terrible laborious work of reading the damn thing. <laughs> God forbid, but... And sometimes it does have to be kind of a close reading, but then other times, you know, like Book 13, for instance, we've both written about Book 13, yes. you know, with the tormentors and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you're given, like, really explicit instructions. Like, you want to do this? Then do these things. Like, here are... You, yeah, you have to shut the fuck up, sit in silence, and then get rid of the stuff that you're doing wrong. Yeah. Like, 
That's the crooks of it. But of course, there's so much going on underneath the surface, but that's the crooks of it. And, you know, book one, you know, here are the activities, the planets that are bestowed on you so that you could exist in this world. As you pass out of this world, you'll give them up. So why not start working on that now? Mm-hmm. Why not start working on giving up your avaricious greed? Why not start working on giving up your evil power of machination and so forth? I'm using that. <laughs> is that evil then or are you using it in a good way? Is good machination evil machination? Is all machination evil? It doesn't talk about that. It doesn't need to. It's, it's supposed to be a high level introductory text. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, okay. So you, so you, you would want to attempt a translation of the entire thing. I would like to. I'm not saying I ever will. <laughs> but, you know, just, it's more like, you know, if I were to do this, you know, I would want to put book one, or sorry, book three as the first book in my translation because it's an introduction. I think it's it's one of those three books we mentioned earlier that don't mention Hermes or mm-hmm. Asclepius, Tataraman, or anything else. It doesn't even mention Poet Madras. It's just, here is the cosmos. And here we are in the cosmos. And now that we're here, here's what we should be doing. And having done those things, here's how things play out for us. This kind of high-level introduction is, I think, so fundamental for so many people getting into the study of Hermeticism and the practice of Hermeticism. Because so many people are wandering around, you know, trying to read and can't get a foothold. Book three gives you that foothold, but I don't really see anyone talking about book three on nearly the same level as like book one or book 13, which are great books, or the Asclepius, which is a great book, but they're all so deep and involved and oftentimes obscure. Mm -hmm. Book three isn't like that. Book three gives you, here's the introduction, here's the big picture of you, here's the elevator speech. You know, let this be, you know, the introduction. If you have a conf- if you have confusion about something later on, think about in terms of book three. Where does it fit in terms of book three? Right. Sort of go back and use it as a framework. I exactly. like I like that, but I think that you're going to run into a problem. Oh. And I think the problem you're going to run into is it's something that um, oh god, what's his what's his name? Uh, 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 Gilles. Quispel, Gilles Quispel. I don't know yeah, how to Quispel. say his name. You know, he's 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 probably Flemish, um, <laughs> or, or a Walloon. Or I guess French. he's a Walloon. <laughs> um, anyhow, uh, he he writes about this in the introduction to the Way of Hermes. That um, his in, his feeling is that the Corpus Hermeticum is kind of split into levels. Where yes, absolutely. So. I was talking earlier about kind of like that 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 Russian doll nesting that you encounter throughout the Corpus Hermeticum. The structure starts to change. Yes, you know, absolutely. It, it starts off sort of simple, or or with just a few elements, but then you start intro- But then it starts introducing like new stuff where, um, where sometimes you just sort of have to like give up what you had before and be like, oh no no no, the world works like this. And then sometimes you have like you know the, the fire and brimstone book seven which is totally this whole thing where it's like, if you don't hate your flesh, you will never ascend. Like it's so counter to, um, to this message of like loving the material world or loving nature in book one. It's kind of the exactly the opposite. Like it's, or like book five. Yeah. Book oh, five yeah. is very monistic and world proving. You're absolutely right. And I think 
calling this a philosophy is faulty. Because we, when you hear the word philosophy, we think of axioms, we think of a form of logic, we think of a set of particular doctrines that are fixed. And Hermeticism does not have that. You know, these, this is absolutely a correct assessment of what the corpora hermetica give us. And that's why things better interpret this as a way, the way of Hermes. And always change. And no two people will be on the same way. They all head to the same destination. That is something we can all agree on. They're all heading to the same destination. They're not going to head to the same destination at the same rate. They're not necessarily going to pass all the same landmarks. They're not going to cover all the same terrain, but they're going to get you from where you are to where we need to be. When you talk about the details, yes, those are going to differ. But book three doesn't talk about the details. And that's one of the beautiful parts of it. It doesn't talk about the details. It says at a high level, here is the cosmos. Here's how we can consider the cosmos at a high level without trying to justify anything, without trying to get into the details of the weeds or anything. Here's what humanity is doing in the cosmos and what we were made to do. Again, not saying how to do it, not saying with what mindset or what approach, just here's what God made us to do and the gods made us to do. I guess you could almost, you know, this is making me think of a conversation I had with um, Justin Sledge about how to read the Zohar, which is slightly longer than the Corpus Dramaticum. <laughs> yeah, a little at like 4,000 pages. But, um, but you know, he was, he was sort of talking about how, like, you you know, the, the, the order that it's typically presented to you in is not the right way to read it. And it could even Ooh. be, like, maybe if somebody's approaching the Corpus Hermeticum for the first time, they should start with book three and be like, here's, here's the way that the universe is going to be presented to you at first. And then you switch to book one and you're like, here's the mushroom trip roller coaster ride that uh, that may have birthed this. Well, whether book one came for book three, there's also it can also easily say that book three came before book one. C. Sure, H. Scott sure. in his The Bible and the Greeks actually talks about this at length and how they both have the same influences appearing in much the same way, just one shorter than the other. We can say that they're on equal footing with each other. Yeah, I, w- I guess I would say if you're trying to understand book one, book three might help you get there. Yeah, but also the rest of the Corpus Medicum. Like it's book three, it just tells you here's where you are, here's the destination. Have at. It's not saying that it's a you know a monotonically increasing function that only goes in one direction over time. You know, it could take it could be twisty, it could go backwards, but on the whole, all the paths will end up to the same point. They'll all converge at the end. And that's what book three is saying. I don't think it's getting into the weeds of those twists and turns that different paths have. Yeah. But you're right that different there are different there are changes in the way. And the Corpus Hermeticum is definitely not consistent with itself. How could it be? You know, Copenhaver notes explicitly that there's evidence of polemics and diatribes going on between different teachers who are producing these different texts where they fought over doctrine with each other. You see this quite clearly in the text Mm -hmm. and you also see other points where you know like in book uh was it 16 of asclepius the letter of asclepius to ammon Mm -hmm. where he says yeah the stuff i'm gonna tell you this letter directly contradicts what i told you before and that's (laughs) fine because you're at a different point now you can understand better things now in a way you couldn't before yeah i guess i was thinking that also uh the one where noose comes down God, is, book, that, is that book 11. five? 
11. Is that 11? Oh, yeah, yeah. Another revelation to Hermes, uh, news to Hermes, where he comes down and he's basically like, no, 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 no. You got this wrong. But that totally feels. I don't think it's. I don't think it's contradicting book one, though. I don't it's think not, it's contradicting. It's not really contradicting book one particular because, uh, but it is sort of contradicting um, some of the earlier books where there's like a structure going on. You know, I think like. Um, ugh, sure. I totally took notes on this. Uh, yeah, in book ten, in fact, there's a whole structure saying like, here's how everything's set up. You've got God, and inside God is the cosmos, and inside the cosmos is man. And then in chapter eleven, it's like, no, that's not right. There's also you have to put eternity in there and you have these other things going on and like, and also there's the sun. <laughs> so, so when it comes to this, number one, book 10 is weird. Like yeah. book 10 is very detailed and offers a lot of things to chew on, but it's also one of the texts, the Corpus Hermeticum that definitely is different than a lot of the others, um, which isn't a bad thing, but it's just something to consider. Mm-hmm. You know, Again, these teachers were writing at different times all under the name of Hermes Trismegistus, but they all had different opinions and views on things. I would believe that they all had roughly equivalent revelations, but in trying to formulate them in a way that made sense, that's where they began to diverge. Yeah. Which is fine. It's difficult for us when all we ha- this is all we have left of them. But take these things on their own terms in their own views and don't necessarily try to see which one's right. They're all right in their own way. Yeah. But book 11 and especially book 13, they point out something that I think is so super important for us to remember at all times. Is it this? Is it spiritual wisdom lies in the womb of silence and the seed is the truth and the Supreme God. That's also important. That wasn't what I was going to go for. (laughs) Um, it's that even when you're, when, even when you go through this process of spiritual rebirth, even after you get to this point of revelation, even after you get to this point of communion with the mind of God itself, you can still fuck up. You can still misunderstand things. You can still act or think or say things incorrectly. And you will always have the chance to improve. Always. Book 11 you know, God is talking, you know, mind is talking to Hermes, whether it's Poemandres or just the mind of God itself, whatever, tomato, belladonna, same diff. And it's clarifying things for Hermes. Hermes, even though he had already been revealed and enlightened by this point in time, he still wasn't omniscient. He was still learning. He still had confusion. Mm-hmm. And so mind came down to clarify things and to push Hermes along the right path. In book 13, when Tat undergoes his process of spiritual rebirth, you know, he's seeing things and he's saying things. And Hermes is like, hold up. Don't be heedless. Say this instead. If you say and think that, you're seeing the right thing, but you're not comprehending it right. Mm-hmm. It's like the story of the four rabbis in, the gar- in Pardes. You yeah. know, that uh, rabbinical, that rabbinical uh, Kabbalistic story of the four rabbis who went up to the garden. One died, one insane, one became a heretic, and only one survived. They all saw the same things, but some of them didn't understand it correctly, and that's where they erred. They mm-hmm. all had a vision of the divine, but they could still err. And that's something we need to remember for us. We're, we are not as good as Rabbi Akiva. Like we're not (laughs) like we are not as good as Hermes. We're not as good as Tat. We're on our way there. But even they still made mistakes and they still needed correction. This way will keep on going and going 
until we finally reach the destination. But we're still on the way. And that way will still guide us so long as we stick to it. It's easy to fall off. It's easy to get lost. That, I think, that kind of like reminder to have humility on our path, but also, um, you know, care, care on our path that we have to watch. um, We have to watch what we think and what we believe, but also what we say. Exactly. Yes. I think think that's a good spot to kind of wrap up the episode, actually. I like, I like that message message right at the end, you know, um, (laughs) you know, yeah. So anyhow, let's talk about uh, where people can find you on the internet. Uh, Sure. Um, So there's my website, HTTPS colon slash slash digital ambler.com. All one word. Uh, that's my main website. That's where you find all my writings and essays, ebooks, classes, services, and so forth. Um, I am on Facebook, uh, Digital Ambler, my own profile uh, page right there, which you can follow if you want. I don't. It's Facebook. I, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> I am on Twitter uh, at Polyphanes, P O L Y P H A N E S. That's my online handle. Um, and that's where I yell and shit post and post terrible opinions about dessert because I'm right and people are wrong. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's basically my website and Twitter. Um, I have my Etsy where you can buy my ebooks and get readings from me if you want, uh, which is again uh, etsy.com slash shop slash polyphides. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Cool. I'll make sure that links to all of that stuff is in the show notes. Thank you. Um, and in particular, I will also make sure that there are links to uh, at least sort of your top level article about the about book three, so people can yeah, get in there. Yeah, so they can, you know, the, the summary sort of leads to the translation and um, your commentary on the translation as you were doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe folks should read that before they get into the rest of the Corpus Hermeticum. I would think it's a good idea. I am, however, rather biased. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for um coming onto my podcast for the very first time ever. <laughs> Thank you for having me for the very first time. It's been a great time. One that has never happened to me before. Yeah. Uh there's a lot more to cover, so I'll probably uh have you back on um after you translate the next section of the Corpus Hermeticum. Okay, give it a few couple lifetimes. It'll happen at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> right. I want to sleep first. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.